You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Not too many years ago, a uh, well-known pastor, theologian by the name of Kevin DeYoung spoke at a well-known theological conference, and he, he made a point in one of his talks that has stuck with me since the day I heard it. He talked about how confusing it must have been growing up in a church 30 or 40 years ago, singing both the songs, This World Is Not My Home, and also, This Is My Father's World. Imagine uh, standing and singing these words, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And you gotta say, a passing, by the way. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I cannot feel at home in this world anymore. Now there's scriptural warrant for this song. I mean, the apostle Peter refers to Christians as exiles or sojourners, that that we are not citizens of this kingdom of darkness, but we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Paul talks about that. But then imagine that uh, right after that, the song leader says, now open your hymnals and you begin to sing these words. This is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand the wonders wrought. You could see why this would be confusing. Is this not my home or is it my father's world? Is it a place where I'm restless because I no longer feel at home or do I rest in the beauty of God's creation here? Which is it? Now, of course, uh, the reason why we can sing both of these songs is because each of these songs uses the term world a little bit differently. One of them refers to the physical created world that begins in Genesis chapter one. It is very good after God creates it, before sin infects it. It's the work of his hand, so it's, it's a beautiful place. It's God's created world. The other song, the first song, This World Is Not My Home, refers to more of a world system that is in opposition to God and his kingdom, one that is dominated by Satan, one that is perpetuated by sin. Same word, but different meanings. Now, as it turns out, the Bible does this as well. It uses one term for world, the Greek term cosmos, at least in the New Testament, and it pretty much, in every example where you find the word world in the New Testament, you're going to find that Greek term cosmos. Now, I say pretty much, because there are like 100 examples, and I didn't take the time to look at every single one of them this week. Every one of them that I did look at was cosmos. I don't know of another word that would have been used there, but there could be, I guess. But understand that overwhelmingly, you're going to find this term, and and what you're going to discover when you read the context of each of these passages is that they're used a little bit differently depending on where you're reading. Sometimes, like in that second song, This Is My Father's World, 
The word cosmos can mean the created physical world. So Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Jeremiah 51, 15, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Now, for those of you language nerds, I recognize I'm reading from the Old Testament, uh, but the Septuagint, the Greek rendering is cosmos here. So just to take a note there. In the New Testament, uh, Acts 17, 24, Paul talks about how God made the world, cosmos, and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. All throughout the Bible, you're going to see the term world simply mean a created physical place. But sometimes, It doesn't refer to the created physical place. Sometimes it refers to the people in the created physical place. So the extremely well-known John 3, 16 and 17, written by the beloved apostle John who penned this letter that we are studying currently, verse by verse, says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I saw a quote, by the way, this week. This is not in the notes. It's always dangerous territory when I do this. Uh, But there was a really fantastic quote that said something along the lines of, God did not send his son to condemn the world. I doubt he sent you either. Mm. Yeah, marinate on that one. This passage speaks to the heart of God for people to bring people into a relationship with himself through the atoning work of his son, Jesus Christ. So sometimes the world means a created physical place, sometimes it means the people who inhabit the created physical space, but sometimes the word cosmos, it means something similar to that first song, this world is not my home. Something like an evil world system, if you wanna think of it that way. So for example, in Romans chapter 12, verse two, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world or world system, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He's saying, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, the evil ways of this world. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. There is that spirit of the world that Paul talks about, a spirit of of rebellion, of, of doing things contrary to how God would have you do them. Paul warns us against that spirit. Don't receive that spirit, but instead receive the spirit of the living God. Now, all of this is true because the world itself, we learn in the New Testament, is controlled by Satan himself. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is called the God of this world. Ephesians chapter 2.2, 2, uh, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. Jesus himself in John 14.30 says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. So understand that the world sometimes means an evil world system that's dominated by Satan and perpetuated by sin. Now, with that in mind, let's come to the text here that we have for us this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and read along with me. They read it during the worship service. I want to read it again. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life or the boastful pride of life, New American Standard translates it that way, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, the immediate question on the table for us this morning is what does John mean by the world? Because he says it a lot here. What does he mean? Does he mean the physical world, the created place? Should we reject God's physical creation? I mean, if that were true, it would be very difficult to obey God's creation mandate, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. It would be very challenging to do that. Does he mean the people in the world? I mean, again, if that were true, then obeying Jesus' great commission would be very challenging to make disciples of all nations. It would be very difficult to make disciples of the very people you were also commanded to hate. I'm going to suggest that when John talks about the world here, he means the evil world system. And there's a lot to break down in this passage, but I want to draw your attention to the fact that in this passage, there is one singular command in this entire thing. There's a lot that John has to say here, but there's only one commandment, one imperative in the Greek, which is how we can determine commandments, and it's this, do not love the world or the things in the world. That's it. That's the main idea of this passage. So that's what we're going to focus on here this morning, one point sermon because there's one commandment. Everything else that John says is an argument to support why obeying this commandment matters. So let's jump in and let's figure out what John means when he says, do not love the world. Why? He tells us. I want to begin by saying, remember last week that we had some assurances that John gave us, assurance of the forgiveness of sins, the assurance of the faithfulness of God to you as a Christian, the assurance of victory over the enemy with the abiding word within you. Those are needed assurances, are they not? They were needed for John's time. They were certainly needed for us last week as well. But one of the dangers of highlighting these beautiful assurances is that you run the risk of Christians letting their guard down and getting a little too comfortable with the world around them and being compromised in it. In other words, there's a danger for all of us to get a little too comfortable with the world that we live within and everything that it has to offer. So John wants to remind us of the assurances of Christ that we have, but he also wants to warn us of the importance of rejecting this evil world system that we are currently situated within. And then he gives us two reasons here in the text for why you should be warned, why you should reject and not love the world around you. First, it's because loving the world will lure you away from loving Jesus. Loving the world will lure you away from Christ. Everything in this world system is in opposition to Jesus Christ. The world hates God, it hates his kingdom, it hates his commandments. And so the danger of falling in love with it is that it will will distract you and it will ultimately lure you away from your love for the Lord. And this happens in a progression. I want you to notice the progression that John lays out here. He begins it in verse 16, and let's break it down here. He begins with the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh. So this is understood as the desires that come from the flesh. 
So understand that the Bible says that you as a Christian are going to, from the moment you become born again in Christ to the moment you breathe your last breath, you will be pulled in two opposing directions at all times. On the one hand, you will be pulled by the Spirit of God to desire and subsequently do that which pleases God. That's a good thing. But on the other hand, you're going to be pulled by what the Bible calls the flesh. This is the Greek term sarks. And like the word world, cosmos, it can mean a couple of different things. Sometimes sarks, flesh, means your physical body, like your flesh, right? Your physical stuff. But often, it refers to something inward that we would call the sin nature. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. What a beautiful passage. Put that on a coffee cup and just glorious. Flowers, fruit of death. He goes on in Romans 8 and 9. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, he's not talking to dead people here, right? He's not saying, you who are not in the flesh, those who have died. No, these are living people, so it's not talking about the physical body, but those who have been born again and received the Spirit of God within them. Jesus, again, in John 6, 63, says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So sometimes this word flesh does not mean your physical body, and one of those instances is here in 1 John 2:16. John is referring here to the sinful nature that every human being possesses. It is a nature that every human being has from conception, that we live in a fallen world, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, and that sinful nature is always in opposition to the Spirit of God. So when John talks about this, he's talking about your desires that come from that place, that sinful nature. In other words, he's saying that there are times in your life as a Christian where this sinful nature within you gives birth to desires that are objectively wrong. You need to hear that. You need to come to terms with that because the world would have you think otherwise. The world is all about celebrating any desire that you have because that's what makes you uniquely you. And how dare anyone try to tell you otherwise? Those desires should not only not be seen as not wrong, but, but they should be lifted up and celebrated as a part of your identity. That is a lie from the pit of hell. You, we, we've got to be honest about this. Everyone in here can relate to this. There are times in your life when you want something that you know is not good. You know it. You know it is not from God. And you know that it will actually be a detriment to you if you pursue it. That is the desire of the flesh. It seems good, it seems like, like it will be a good thing and it will promise a short-term payoff, but it is destructive, it should be rejected because it will draw you away from your love to Jesus. I read this survey this past week about why people are leaving the church. This is a very recent survey. Why people are leaving the church. And, and if you're anything like me, I suspect I'm not the only person who, who expected this. I thought, given the last three years, I assumed that politics would probably be near the top, right? Wrong. Only 6% in the survey identified politics as a reason for why they have left the church. Race relations surely has to be it. 
2.67% people who left the church because of that. Moral misalignment. A lot of big name celebrity pastors who are falling out. 2% of people left because of that. Women's rights. This is one that, that actually I was also shocked wasn't bigger. 5.62%. The number one reason why people leave the church right now, according to this survey, and it won by a landslide, over 6% then second place, 22% in total were views on sexuality, specifically within the LGBTQ conversation. This is the reason why people are leaving the faith right now. Now, uh, some of the people in this survey did self-identify as queer. Most of them were straight. And they just had these experiences that made them evaluate how they felt according to their experiences versus the Bible. And they determined the Bible must be wrong. The church must be wrong. There were quotes from people who took this survey. Uh, one of them said, the first thing that challenged my viewpoint directly was meeting LGBTQ people and seeing that they were kind, thoughtful, and deserving of respect. Now, I will say, there's something very broken in our church if it surprises you that gay people are kind. <laughs> I mean, they're, if anything, kind. So, so what happens is this, this person, this, they, they met someone who, who is either homosexual or transgender. This person was kind to them, and so they reasoned, well, the Bible must be wrong because they were so nice. How could they be wrong? Or they developed same-sex attraction, and they thought, well, you know what? God made me this way. He gave me these desires. This is how I feel, and so this must be right. This must be truth. These are examples of what happens when you allow the desires of your flesh to lead you over and above God's revelation. When you assign, listen to this, ultimate authority to your feelings, this becomes a problem. So understand this, the biblical view of sexuality has literally 0% to do with how kind you are. It has, it has no bearing on God's view of sexuality whatsoever. There are people who are, who are in their right sexual identity and they are not kind at all, has no bearing whatsoever. It has nothing to do with, understand this, how you feel either. Your feelings don't dictate your identity as a sexual creation. Your creator does. Now that doesn't just apply, get this, to the LGBTQ conversation alone. If every straight person I knew, myself included, began to live my life in pursuit of things based on how I felt in the moment, oh my gosh, it would be a mess. It would be, it would be chaos. It'd be utter chaos. I'm a pastor. It'd be chaos. Professional Christian, don't let, them, don't let us fool you. We're just like you. We're just as broken as you are. We would make a mess so quickly. You, you have got to come to terms with this. Your desires are fickle, they are deceptive, they are ever-changing. What you wanted last year, you still want that thing? No, you've moved on to 10 other things. They're ever-changing and they will lead you to despair if they are not brought into alignment with the truth of God's word. Amen. Now as an aside, just so I'm hitting both sides of the aisle here. Let me just say that I do believe the church, in general, 
has done an overwhelmingly crappy job of acknowledging the image of God and the value of human dignity in all people, including those in the LGBTQ community. That is true. The things that have been perpetrated upon people in this community in the name of love are sickening, and it should be repented of. But the world would try to convince you that you cannot give dignity to someone and tell them that their desires are wrong. The world wants you to believe that dignity equals approval of every person's desires and actions regardless of what you think about them. That is simply not true. You can and you should give dignity to all people and speak truth to them. Every person created, that means everyone, is created in the image of God. That means the worst people that you can conceive in your mind, Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden, all the big names that that are like the top criminal, top evil representatives of the world are created in the image of God and should be given human dignity. If you believe in the Bible. Well, but they're so mean. I don't care. So are you. You just didn't act on it and take a couple more steps that led them to where they, they, they were led. Everyone deserves human dignity. This is the basis, by the way, of how we relate to other people in different genders and in different races and in different communities and different socioeconomic conditions. This is what I believe recognizing the image of God and the value of human dignity sets us in a place where we're able to give grace to all people, which is needed. But understand, dignity apart from truth is not dignity. It's, it's false. It's empty. You, they, they come together. They come as a packaged deal. You cannot give dignity void of truth. But, just so we're, again, leveling with one another, the flesh hates this. The flesh doesn't like the truth. It doesn't embrace the truth. And so when the desires of the flesh arise, we have to be willing to meet those desires with the truth of God's word, regardless of how I feel about it, and ask the Holy Spirit to form me to the truth and not my own desires and emotions. That's the whole, that is a practical definition of what it means to be made holy. Not conforming God to my wants and desires, but having my wants and desires conform to the truth of God's word. Whether sexual desire or otherwise, all of it must be brought into conformity with the truth of Scripture. Now, listen, next week we're going to talk more about sexuality. As I mentioned at the welcome, Denise Schick, founder, director of Help for Families, is going to be here which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support and resources to families affected by gender dysphoria. So if I have not said enough for you this morning, don't worry, I'm gonna say more, just not right now, but next week. So come back and bring a friend, We'd love to have you. This is a big issue. We need to understand how to rightly think about this stuff. We need to understand the problems surrounding these issues with regard to how we live a biblically sound, Christ-exalting life. And this is only one example of the desire of the flesh. It could be porn, it could be materialism, it could be greed, it could be jealousy. The point that John is making is be aware of it. Be wary of it. Don't let the desires of your flesh lure you away from loving and pursuing Jesus Christ. One way to protect yourself, John is going to tell us, is to protect yourself from what you allow yourself to see. John moves from the desires of the flesh to next, the desire of the eyes. So notice the progression. 
It begins with this selfish, human, sinful nature. It gives birth to these sinful, fleshly desires, and those desires are stimulated by what the eyes see. The eyes in the New Testament are often seen as the source of desire, and in Jesus' teaching, they're specifically the source of sexual desire. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, in the so-called Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He's quoting one of the Ten Commandments here, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. So he says, you've heard this well-known commandment, you shall not commit adultery, but then look at verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is serious stuff. You think that you're something because you haven't actually committed adultery. But Jesus says, oh yeah, but by the way, anyone who looks at another woman with lustful intent has already done so because you've allowed your eyes to be captivated by something that is going to stir up the desire of the flesh. So how do we protect ourselves from this? Jesus tells us in the next verse, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, I don't think he's literally saying tear your eye out. If that were true, all of his disciples would be running around with like an eye patch, right? I feel like there's a James joke here. What he's saying is do what you have to do to protect yourself from that which is going to make you stumble. And again, do not walk away from here with the idea that the desire of the eyes is only sexual. It can be sexual. It's not always sexual. Sometimes it's a bigger house that you can't afford or a newer car that you don't need or some change in your life that you think is going to magically fix all of your problems that is neither practical nor wise. And I'm not saying you should never buy a bigger house or that new cars are wrong, but if it fuels this inward desire that is from the flesh, avoid it. I am saying that. John is saying that. Avoid it. And I want to be very clear about something here because this is where Christians can go from like zero to 80 when it comes to legalism. This issue of what you protect yourself from is to an extent subjective. In other words, what could potentially trip you up that you need to avoid looking at might be different than your Christian brothers and sisters. Now, there are some things that all Christians should avoid. Pornography. Just throw that out there. Well, it doesn't trigger me. I don't care. It's sin. Don't look at it. But for example, materialism, let's talk about that. Things that arouse your selfish desires, those things may not be triggering to your friends. So don't become dogmatic or legalistic when those people buy or interact with things that would trip you up because it triggers you and not them. This is where the law of love begins to play an operative role in your relationships. If you know something is going to trip up your brother, then don't do it in front of him. All right? And if you know that it's going to trigger you, don't ask him about it. All right? Don't incite that. Live with a law of love between the each of you. But understand that what trips you up may be different than the other person. And that's okay. John wants you and Jesus wants you to be accountable for you, not your brother. Let your brother handle his own business. Hold him accountable, but let him figure that out through the Holy Spirit's work in his life. The point here is this. Consider what you are looking at, what you are putting your attention and focus on, and ask the question, does this thing fuel selfish desires of the flesh within me? If it does, then cut it out. Avoid it. 
tear out your right eye and throw it away from you. Because look where this takes you. It begins with the desires of the flesh. It desires are stimulated by the desires of the eyes and it's expressed ultimately in the boastful pride of life. This word pride in the Greek language, aladzonea, it's a word that means arrogance or bragging. It actually conveys strongly the sense of empty bragging. So it's kind of the idea of a guy who is bragging about something and actually over embellishes the details in order to impress people around him. There's sort of this emptiness within it. It's not really true to the fullest extent. Here's what happens when you allow yourself to indulge in the desires of the flesh your eyes are stimulated, your, your desires of the flesh creep up, and then you begin to just kind of fall headlong into it, you begin to turn your ten- attention inwardly. You move your eyes off Jesus, and you begin to move your eyes onto yourself and all of the things that you possess over God, and it actually becomes what the Bible would call idolatry. You become self-sufficient. You develop a sense of independence that you don't really need God for this, whether that is an outward thought or just it's just sort of you're not really consulting with him or his word or the Holy Spirit, you become greedier, you become more inwardly focused. Eventually, your love for Jesus gets traded for your love for yourself and all that you've done. And so John is warning us, don't love the world or the things in the world because ultimately the, the world is going to lure you away from your love for, for the, the Lord. And, and I will tell you, just out of experience, here in my own life and dealing with people through several years now in this church, it's my experience that people don't just fall out of love with Jesus. I've never seen that happen. I've never seen someone just sort of fall out of love with the Lord. What you see overwhelmingly is people compromise the truth when it comes to their desires of their flesh. They're either uh, engaged in secret sin that they don't want anyone else to know about so that they don't have to be held accountable for it, or they just refuse to accept that what they're doing is sin because they don't want to stop doing it, and they slowly fall in love with whatever that thing is that they're doing, and at some point, they are met with a crossroads in their life where they're forced to choose, am I going to repent and choose the Lord, or am I going to stay loving this other thing? And because they've spent the last several weeks, months, or years loving this thing, they choose it. It's not that they don't love the Lord, it's just that they really love this thing more. And we're gonna talk next time we, the next passage, right after this, starting in verse 18, or maybe in chapter three, I don't remember how that breaks up, I think it's in chapter three. We're gonna talk about the underlying reason for why people ultimately walk away from the church. One of the reasons I wanted to do this series under construction was because it presents some really great grounds for just some elementary teachings of the faith, but one of the reasons is because there's a growing trend in the world of what we would call deconstruction, and again, it's my experience that the people who so often deconstruct rarely had anything constructed to begin with. And and, and so what John is going to um, imply here is that the reason why people walk away is because there's something else underlying going on. And I don't want to give it away. We're going to do that in four weeks. Remember, next week is Denise. The following week is Palm Sunday. The following week is Resurrection Sunday. So we've got about four weeks till we're back in First John. But, but practically, it begins because they allow the desires of their flesh to run rampant. They don't protect themselves from it. They fall in love with the world. And what does Jesus' half-brother James say about that? James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Eventually, your love for the world makes Jesus your enemy because Jesus becomes the thing standing between you and the thing that you love. You don't want to come to that place. Loving the world will lure you away from him, but it gets worse. Secondly, it will lure you into death. Look at verse 17. It says, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world not only will lure you away from Jesus, but it will lure you into its own final destination, which is death. John says the world is passing away, and all of this stuff that you believe so deeply will bring you satisfaction and happiness and fulfillment will ultimately die, and you will die along with it. The world is passing away along with its desires and in conjunction with those who desire them. That's the force of this passage. This is why Jesus warned several times throughout the earthly ministry recorded in the Gospels the dangers of loving the world. He says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. He goes on in that same chapter in verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He goes on actually and gives that illustration of those that performed signs and wonders in his name. These were not menial Christians. These were people who were doing, it seems like, ministry. And when they come to him, he says, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. You were doing those things, but you weren't doing them for the will of the Father. You were doing them for your own selfish reasons, your own selfish desires. You fell in love with the world. You weren't willing to reject it. You weren't willing to take the road less traveled, but you entered the wide and destructive gate. Folks, get this. I, this doesn't last forever. It's so easy to get caught up in like your own sphere, your own bubble of life because of how busy you are and how many distractions you have, good or bad. And, and it's easy to just assume like, I'm gonna be doing this forever. This doesn't last forever. It, it come, there is a day of accountability for every one of us. Every one of us will have to stand before God when we die and give an account. And save the blood of Jesus, we have no hope to do so. It's easy to fall in love with the world. It really is. It really, don't, don't become like overly prideful as a Christian as if like, oh, that's, you know, the world's not gonna get me. It's easy to fall in love with the world. It will advocate for you. It will advocate for your deepest desires, your deepest longings. It will make you feel empowered. It will tell you that you can live however you want and no one gets to say, no one gets to decide that. No one gets to speak into your life in that way. It will champion you. It will never correct you. It will tell you that you are responsible for nothing and that you are accountable to no one, that you get to decide what's best for you and no one should say otherwise. In essence, it will tell you there is a God and he or she can be seen when you look into the mirror. You become the final say. You become the final authority. And we should celebrate you because look how awesome you are and look how beautiful and wonderful you are. 
And here's the truth. It will promise you everything and it will deliver you loneliness and death. It will leave you empty and hopeless. And then one day it will pass away and like a toilet that is flushed, it will pull you into death along with it. But hey, at least you didn't feel judged, right? It's all a lie. It's a mirage. It's a lie. Let me give you a truth. The world is full of lies because it is ruled by the father of lies. It is full of lies because it's ruled by the father of lies. As long as Satan is bound to this earth, which has happened, by the way, Revelation 12, since the resurrection, he is the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the world, and everything he does to lie and deceive and manipulate, and he doesn't play by the rules either. There, there is no out of bounds for him. Everything he does, the world will follow suit. And it will try to convince you that, man, you're in the minority for thinking this stuff because you are. It will gaslight you. It will make you feel crazy. Like, how, am, am I crazy for thinking this? Why does everyone just seem to be okay with this stuff? It's, it's challenging. It will manipulate and deceive and lead you into places that you deeply regret. And so in those moments, I want you to remember the words of Scripture as written by John in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. It will steal your affections away from your love for Jesus. And then once it's left you empty and hopeless, it will destroy you. Don't love the world. Love Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just this stark reminder of the danger of the world that we live in. There's a reason why we are to live in the world but not be conformed to it. Why we are to be a light in the world because the world is a dark place. Help us find that balance of rejecting everything that this evil world system stands for and at the same time, demonstrating grace and kindness to those who inhabit this physical world, that they might see the beauty and the hope that is found within the gospel of Jesus alone. Help us be people of salt and light. Help us reject those desires that so easily draw us off center. We rely upon you. We rely upon your spirit. For without you, we cannot do this. We've allowed the word to inform us. And now, God, we ask your spirit to form within us these things that we might be a little bit more like Jesus after. We pray these things in his powerful name. Amen. God bless you. See you next week.